Hello and welcome to the employee-owned edition of Political Traction. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. With the federal budget only months away, organizations across the country are fighting to get their voices heard. While some are arguing for more funding on specific line items, others are hoping to create large-scale change in the way businesses can operate. This week, we're joined by John Shell, the Managing Director and Partner of Social Capital Partners. He believes Canada is behind the curve on employee ownership models and should adopt the same system seen in the UK and the US and other large democracies. This is Political Traction. All right, uh, welcome to the podcast again. It's another week. Uh, we have a very, I guess, a politically nerdy topic, I would say. It's certainly a policy topic. And as a comms person, I'm always um, always happy to wade in there uh, and get a greater understanding of it. As I mentioned in the intro, John Shell is joining us today, and he is with uh, Social Capital Partners. So, John, before we get into sort of the meat of your big ask of government, um, I'm wondering if you could just, you know, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Like, let's assume we're at a, we're having a beer in a bar and you're, we just met and, and you know, what's, what's your background, John? What's your history and why did you brought you to this quest? I start by saying um, you would enjoy this beer more if you went and talked to somebody else. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, so, so my background is uh, primarily in the private sector. Amanda, I am, uh, you know, pretty typical path. I went to business school. I was a consultant for a while. Um, and then um, I spent a dozen years in Canada and Australia buying veterinary practices. So, so uh, um, you know, we I was involved in, in uh, co-founding the largest veterinary service businesses uh, that exist now in, in Canada and Australia. But along the path, I had, a, you know, I was sort of watching what was happening as we were um, um, shifting ownership of veterinary practices in the private sector from uh, from veterinarians uh, uh, to what eventually became private equity companies, and just wondering about my place in the world and what was I doing and was it helping or was it not helping? Uh, and uh, and so um, when I left that that world, I joined uh, Social Capital Partners with my partner Bill Young, the nonprofit um, that he founded 20 years ago. The idea behind it is. How can we get folks who've had experience in the private sector to help think about uh, um, creating more opportunity uh, in the economy for people who otherwise don't have it? And so I, you know, most of SCP's history has been on the uh, income side. So how do we help people get good jobs uh, um, who otherwise uh, don't have access or facing some sort of barrier? And recently, uh, you know, and this is this will lead to the ask, and this is partly informed by by my background of seeing ownership. Uh, go away from certain people into other people and get more concentrated and consolidated. Um, you know, we are now thinking about the asset side of wealth inequality. So, how do you uh, um, uh, how do you find ways to provide assets to people who otherwise don't have access? And uh, the best way to do that is through employee ownership. Uh, um, you know, where elsewhere in the world there are um, really interesting models um, where you can broaden ownership. So we spend all of our time as a nonprofit thinking about how do we uh, find ways to shift ownership to more people in the private sector, uh, um, which again, back to my background, I told you you should be with somebody else. Uh, um, uh, it's sort of a, okay, you know, I spent all that time uh, um, helping ownership get consolidated. Uh, now I need to do something different uh, uh, and, and try to make ownership go the other way. So talk to me a little bit about employee trust. Now, 
this is a concept that's been around in the UK and the States for, for a bit longer than it has in Canada. I know there are some Canadian examples, but maybe not exactly what you're looking for. Um, why, why should Canadians, why should government look at this? Yeah, why should anyone care, for sure. So yeah. the easiest way to, to bring that uh, or to make that come alive is, you know, in the U.S., there is a grocery chain called Publix. Uh, so for Canadians would, would know it, I think, if they've been down to Florida. Um, that grocery chain has 200,000 employees, uh, so it's about the same size as Loblaw. Uh, it is majority employee-owned. So most of that company, the vast majority, is owned by its 200,000 employees, from grocery clerks all the way up to the management. Um, and every year, someone will retire from Publix. Um, uh, you know, as a grocery clerk, as a shelf stalker, as someone who is a frontline worker uh, with a million dollars uh, in their retirement account. Um, those types of windfalls are not available uh, to uh, most people. Last year, uh, we were involved in financing um, a transaction in the U.S. where Taylor Guitars, which is the largest manufacturer of acoustic guitars in the U.S., played by people like you know, Taylor Swift, Jason Mraz, so very um, um, uh, you know, powerful and prominent company, very thoughtful, sustainable wood, founded by a couple of hippies uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a very small guitar store 45 years ago. We financed the transaction of Taylor Guitars to sell to its 1,200 employees in the U.S. and Mexico uh, in partnership with the Healthcare of Ontario Pension Plan. Neither of those things that I just described are possible in Canada. Right. So they are possible in the U.S. and they're not possible in Canada. And in the case of Taylor Guitars, tens of millions of dollars over the next, you know, whatever decades to come will flow to employees. So that's that's what we don't have. And that's what we're trying to create a model for. Why? Why is it? It seems seems like a good, like a logical system to explore. Um, you know, we've had we're having increasing conversations about inequality. I mean, I think, you know, what happened, there's a lot of. There's a lot of roads traced to what just happened in Ottawa, but yeah. you know I think one of the the causes of that, which people we need to acknowledge as a country, is that like the like the poverty of people like that were protesting. They had nothing to lose. They had no jobs. They had no you know they've been grinding away, and there's a feeling that I can't get ahead. So if we have this sort of subset that's I think inflating in this country, why why is this? This seems like a policy solution that's been in place in other places for for decades so why why isn't it possible here in canada what's what's the issue are we just too conservative are we slow like, no no look I, so so first of all i would say um i think most people would would agree that there are two big problems we need to solve you know one is climate change and the other is wealth inequality and uh, um i think to to you know to your point i think it is not there are people who have good jobs uh, um, who are grinding away and feel like they can't get ahead. Yeah. And, you know, and there are, and if, if you think of, I mean, obviously in the context of housing prices, I mean, you have entire generations of people who believe they'll never get ahead. Um, and 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 th those feelings are real, right? I mean, there's lots of people who dismiss this stuff, and, but it is, it is real and it is powerful. Polls are consistently taken these days where people's faith in democracy is lower, people's faith in, in uh, free market capitalism is lower. Uh, and dramatically lower, right? And, and especially among young people. So this problem of of, of uh, um, uh, wealth inequality, we you know, is a is a very big one. I think we can generally agree that that that's true. Um, so how do you 
but, but that's an easy thing to say. How do you, how do you address that? And, and um, uh, we believe this is one of the real ways that is proven uh, that you can do it. Now, why don't we have it yet? I mean, the circumstances around which it was, um, and for a kind of a political audience, I think this will be interesting. Um, so this is a digression I don't normally do, and I know we're short on time, but I'll try to do it quickly. Um, in the U.S., um, in the 60s and 70s, there was a guy called Louis Kelso who wrote a book, if you can believe it, called The Capitalist Manifesto. And his, his objective in life as a lawyer in California was how do we make sure that capitalism benefits more people? That was his whole thing. And so he, on his own, designed a bunch of these trust structures. And it's, it so happened that he met a senator from California. And he explained the concept. The senator thought this was amazing. And he fitted into their ERISA legislation in 1974, which is their retirement. So he turned this idea of this lawyer in California into a structured plan, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, that embedded in, in U.S. law. So it was sort of an accident of history. But because it worked so well, these trusts, you know, there has been a bipartisan consensus over 45 years that this is a wonderful thing in the U.S. So people from Bernie Sanders to Ronald Reagan have waxed poetically on why employee ownership is a wonderful thing. Um, and uh, uh, the reason for that, and let me just quickly, you know, describe what it is. I mean, it's effectively a leverage buyout, meaning you use a bunch of debt to buy a company on behalf of employees. And the debt is often provided by the owner themselves. So an owner says, okay, I'm going to sell my company for whatever it is called $10 million. I'm going to loan the company $10 million to buy it. All of the shares are going to be owned by this special trust. And then over time, I will get paid back my $10 million from the company and the share price will go up. All of the benefits of those shares now go to my employees. And so what the U.S. did is they said, okay, great. We're going to do two things with that. One, we're going to give tax advantages to this because we think it's awesome. Right. We know that it's it's great. It has been proven to be great for communities. It keeps jobs in local communities. It keeps jobs owned by Americans because, you know, these are all employees who now own them. Um, uh, you know, it has wealth effects that go up. Obviously, it has uh, um, a great benefits for the employees. So they really like this. So we're going to provide some tax benefits in exchange for some rules. And those rules mean all employees get shares. So this isn't for senior management. This is this is all employees get shares and they get them for free. And the reason why those things are super important is if you want to tackle wealth inequality, you need to make access to things. Uh, you need to you need to create very accessible forms of ownership. So this is super accessible because you don't need to have any money to get your shares and you need to make it broad based. It can't be exclusively for the one percent. This has to be a broad based plan. And it's worked amazingly. So now in the U.S., there are 14 million Americans who have these plans. Um, there's $1.4 trillion in company assets in these plans, so an average of $100,000 per person. And you have these 6,500 companies that are, by and large, majority owned by employees. The last thing they did, which was really smart, is they said, OK, but in order for these to actually scale, we can't make it like a one person, one vote situation. right? This can't be a co-op. Right? You can't take a manufacturing company that's been doing the same thing in the same sort of structure for 70 years and turn it into a co-op tomorrow. So they kept governance the same. So employees own the shares through this trust, but the company continues to be managed in the way it's always been managed. Uh, and it, so it's worked incredibly well. So Publix, for example, they got a CEO, they got a CFO, they got all that stuff. Um, but the employees are the ones that benefit. And the people in this community are so bought in. I mean, if you, you know, we have had a chance to talk to some of the, the, the people who have been in this for a long time. 
and they just they can see the value. Uh, um, you know, they these guys default less, so uh, um, they, they do better in recessions. So anyway, so the UK, so that happened in the US, kind of accidental. In the UK, uh, um, you had another pioneering person who, you know, and then you had a coalition government in 2014. After the financial crisis, they were looking for new ideas on how do we structure the economy for better balance. They said, well, this thing in the US is working really well, let's do it. So 2014, they brought it. So it took, you know, what is that, 40 years for the yeah. UK to get up to the UN? So it's sort of just our turn. And, and it's, you know, uh, uh, would it have been great? Had we also done this in 2014? Sure. But uh, the sooner the better. So we've seen, um, you know, lobbies building momentum, organizations to try and get big change out of government. I think an example, like an, another example of that would be the child care, right? The government, yeah. like we talked about it for ages, it's been in platforms and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, Trudeau government, which I think, think is great. I'm not a big fan of theirs, but I really like that decision that they made. Um, you've been having, my understanding is you've been meeting with MPs, um, you know, your organization is pushing this. Um, it was referenced in the, C the conservative platform. It was in the reference of the 2021 budget. Both have been around governments long enough to know just because your message in the budget doesn't mean stuff is happening. So what's, what's the response been so far? Are you getting traction or is it like a lot of head nods? Like what's, where do you think everyone's at? Look, I think we've been overwhelmed by the support. To be honest, um, uh, you know, we came out with the report in October 2020. We knew that was either the best time or the worst time ever to, to put this out. Uh, it turned out to work out really well. Um, uh, um, you know, I think the com the commitment in the budget was genuine. So we know that people have been working on this over the last whatever it is, 10 months since the budget was released uh, um, and have learned about it in, in ways they didn't know about it before. We've met with 20 MPs. In this cycle, um, uh, you know, from the from four party, we haven't met with the block yet, but we met with an NDP, we met with the Green Party, the, and and so what we found is, you know, and we probably met with an equal number of conservatives as liberals, and they like it equally much, which is a terrible turn of phrase, but but you know, for uh, conservatives, uh, they see this as uh, really useful for local jobs, incredibly important to the succession problem that is absolutely coming. Like we're, we're already seeing the wave of baby boomer business owners selling their businesses. And so they see this as a really important transition option. Uh, um, and they see it as sort of the private sector working to, uh, um, uh, you know, create the outcomes that we want. And obviously for uh, liberals also really concerned about the succession issue, uh, um, uh, but see this as great for workers, which it is. And I think all parties now are thinking about workers in a way that I don't think has been true before. And, yep. and this, is an, this is an unequivocally good thing for workers. And people are saying, well, you know, we actually realize how big a problem that is and care about it. The last thing I'll say is um, we've had a lot, we didn't expect this, but pretty much everyone has said, okay, so these now are going to be owned permanently by Canadians. Right. So this isn't your, these companies are now not going to sell to some American private equity company. They're not going to sell this to a competitor that is based in some other country. These are now going to be Canadian owned more or less forever. And that's been a really powerful message and is also true. So can I ask you to that point? So let's say it's employee owned and, you know, an American like a big competitor or whatever wanted to buy uh, like an employee owned trust yeah. is that just like a non-starter is that part of the structure of it or could they employees say you know what we gather ourselves together yeah. and decide off it goes like how yeah. would that work um so it depends a little bit on design 
but and on on the owner who's selling because obviously the owner doesn't want to do all this and make the sacrifice that they're making to make this happen and then a year later it gets sold out from under it. Yeah. Um, but uh, um, uh, there are mechanisms for a sale if it makes sense for employees. So for example, there was a brewery in the U.S. called New Belgium Brewery, which was employee owned, very yeah. successful company. Um, they were purchased by uh, a Kirin Brewery uh, uh, out of uh, Japan. You know, it's sad because it's not employee owned anymore, but employees made an absolute ton of money on this thing. Uh, and it was frankly the right decision for them at that time. So, you know, hands won't be tied, but uh, companies that become employee owned are very likely to stay employee owned long term, but they're not constrained if a really great offer comes along. There's been, you know, discussion around the pandemic itself and just its way of kind of focusing us on inequality, on sort of a reorganization of what our welfare state looks like. You know, you talked about housing prices, how we structure ourselves. And it's it's been interesting, like watching even in Ontario here, the provincial government, they've got their second working for workers bill that they're rolling out this week. Right. I mean, these are there's there's some small like I call them like newsletter, or like headline stuff that they're doing. But you you mentioned this, that there's an increased focus on like workers and the political yeah. salience of that. Um like taking back, like this is obviously one area, but stepping back, do you feel like this is an era, like sort of like we saw, you know, after the Great Depression when there was this huge kind of change around society and how we structure ourselves? Do you see more of that happening between climate change and between the issues of, of inequality that we're going to see people looking for more creative solutions? And and if businesses don't step up, they'll be left behind. Like, what do you think is going to happen in the next little bit? You know, I really hope so. Um, I don't know what path we're on otherwise. Uh, um, uh, you know, like, like I think we, we, I think have been in a period where we haven't sought to make things better. We have sought to make things the same and incrementally different. And and what has happened over the last forty years as we've done that, uh, we've seen almost every indico- indicator go back. We're not even, and we're not even growing fast, right? It's not like all of this stuff is leading to growth. So uh, um, I think it's clear that that there needs to be some change. And I think people are are recognizing that, and so. I, I sure hope so, right? I hope this is part of a, you know, I think childcare fits in this. I think, I hope this is part of a, a, you know, thinking about the middle class, not just that, well, let's give them a little bit of a tax cut or something, but actually how do we fundamentally make life, make their lives easier as they should be, as they were for my parents, as they were for me, right? I was born in 1975. That's like the best time to have been born, right? Like, like everything was easier for me than it is for someone who's 15 years younger than me. And that's weird, right? So is this this is absolutely part of that. And as you know, um, as we think about the thousands of Canadian companies that are going to transition going forward because of baby boomers retiring, the more of those. And this is why this is urgent. Right. Like we, It's a shame we don't have this in place now because these transactions are happening every day. Um, uh, you know, if we go another five years without a policy like this, we're going to miss out on a ton of opportunities where where the transition of a business can be part of the solution for um, uh, uh, working people and affordability and, and you know making their lives easier. And so, you know, at least that's for us, that's why we think it's urgent. But boy, I mean, and, and once, if we're able to get this policy question, we're gonna look at the next thing. You know, what is the next way that we can help make the lives of, of people who work in this country uh, easier? So if folks who are listening want to learn a little more about this, like should they check out your website or their books they should read? Like what should they do to, they're passionate about this topic or feel this is the right? Uh, they can reach out. 
we're happy to have a conversation. Uh, um, there's a website called employee-ownership.ca, which has all of our materials. Um, uh, we're going to be putting out our white paper again with some updates. I mean, you know, just in the, in the year and a half since we uh, started this thing, there's been a report in the U.S. that shows not only is this great for workers, but it's even better for uh, workers of color and women. Uh, 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 and there's been reports through COVID-19, again, about how resilient these businesses have been uh, um, through economic uh, challenging times in the same way they were in, in the Great Recession uh, and in 2001. So we're adding those things to it. So there'll be new stuff coming out as well. But employee-ownership.ca is the best way, or they can reach out to anyone on the team we'd be happy to talk about. Okay, awesome. Well, John, I um, we wish you all the best in this quest. I think it sounds amazing. And uh, I know being inside government, it's slow, but uh, eventually they do they do change. So hopefully- yeah. They just take their time. Well, and, you know, and they are working on it. And we have been we have been very, very pleasantly surprised. Not being government people, like we don't know anything about this stuff. Yeah. We're making up as we go along. Uh, people seem to care, uh, um, and they're working hard on it. And we've been very gratified by that. So, so we are very hopeful. Thank you, Matt. So your fingers are crossed for budget twenty twenty two. Then you think fingers uh, are fingers and toes. All, all right, we'll watch for that. Okay, thank you so much, John. Thanks, Amanda. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show is produced by John Gardner, Kimberly Draypack, Matt Barnes, Adam Owen, and Thomas Ashcroft. A very special thank you goes of this week's guest, John Shell. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate us online wherever you find your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Traction Poly. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We'll see you next week.